everybody. Welcome to episode 489 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam joined by Jill. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm in our office um, because, well, really because I wanted to go to our local, the local coffee shop by our office, Gourmands, to get some coffee to make it home. Um, that was like my only real reason to come in, but I also had bunches of books. So, um, but for people who work in a big office that are going every once in a while, like we have access to, it is very like, it's almost like spooky to get here first thing in the morning and there just be no one in this giant office. Right. But it's, you know, it is what it is. I did um, hear the front desk is all Halloween-y though. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So for people who don't know, which is the overwhelming majority of you, because most of you don't work at Overdrive, our company is amazing at Halloween. And so when I got here this morning, I guess I wasn't thinking that like, oh, they're probably still going to decorate the office since like on any given day, there's 15 people here, yeah. there's several hundred. And it is, there's like hanging ghosts. And yeah, the front desk is like creepy. Like I went over there at like seven in the morning to grab a book that had gotten delivered for me. And I was like, I don't like this actually. It's very dark. And yeah, it's um, kudos to Paul, who I don't know if he listens to our podcast, but Paul, who works at Overdrive, who does like all of the uh, event type things at our office. He's, he's doing a good job, even though only a few of us are going to see it. So highly recommend people who do work here. Come check it out. <laughs> it's very creepy. Um, you talked about one book last time that we recorded an intro, and spoiler alert, we're, we're recording this 30 seconds after the other one. So um, were there any other books that you wanted to talk about, or, or was it just the one? I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. Uh, no, there is one. Um, I have to open my spreadsheet back up. Um, this one is a novella that I read in like an afternoon because sometimes you just need to like check out. Um, it's called Wrapped. It's by Rebecca Weatherspoon. It's a romance. Um, novella was very short. It's like Christmas themed, which is mm-hmm. one of those like cozy romance. Well, actually, let, let me rephrase that. Um, it's a romance. It It is it is a very steamy, steamy one. It's not like cozy. It's like a steamy, steamy one. Um, but it's about a, um, she owns a bake shop and she matches with this guy that she used to work with on a dating app. Um, and they meet up and, you know, hook up and it was good. It was cute. I mean, again, cute's not the right word. It was a, um, it was a delightful read. It was a delightful read, but it is like on a, on the scale, it's a very like hot steamy book in a good way. I enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, sometimes you just need, you know, you just need like a short novella. Novellas are great for that. Mm-hmm. When you just need something like bite-sized to read and you want to complete it. Um, so that is wrapped. Yeah. And it's Christmas themed. It's around Christmas time. Nice. Um, speaking of, yeah, you, you said, cozy even though not that book and then kind of like comforting I read um I just finished Alice Hoffman's new book Magic Magic Lessons which we previewed I think for October but it's the prequel to Practical Magic and Rules of Magic and same thing it was very just like delightful um I've when she was on the show I talked about how I really like how she she writes stories about witches but they're not like like their magic is all based from the earth and like it's all you know, using herbs and creating tea and, uh, you know, using like roots of plants and various things to, to work their magic. And so it's, if you are familiar with practical magic, 
Uh, you, I mean, you don't need to have been to start with this book, but you do get like lots of little Easter egg type of things. So it's very, very delightful. And same thing, like Househoff, the way that she writes feels very like comforting to me. So that was quite enjoyable. Uh, today's episode is going to be an interview that I did with Anne Cleves, who is an award-winning uh, award crime writer who is just speaking of delightful. She's a delightful human being. Uh, she has a new book out called The Darkest Evening, and it is a Vera Stanhope book. Uh, Vera Stanhope is her wildly popular, uh, unglamorous, yet brilliant detective. Those are words on her own website that she uses to describe her character. So I'm not I'm not calling her unglamorous, um, but it's really, really fun. It's it's very much in the sense of like an Agatha Christie, like clue kind of a murder in a house type of a book where the characters initially can't leave because there's a huge snowstorm. And um, Anne is interesting because she spent several decades of her life being a writer, but like, as she kind of said, like a writer with no acclaim she just was like her book releases would be like having a couple of people over at a library to chat and like that was that was it and then people fell in love with Vera and now it's she's it's interesting to hear her in like kind of her later years of her life talk about how much she both enjoys um the fame and notoriety of everything but she also just loves loves talking to like one or two people at a time about her books and it was a really interesting conversation so I'm excited for you guys to listen to this. Uh, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? You can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yes, you can. Um, okay. I'm not going to keep you guys any longer. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Ann Cleves on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. So uh, we always love starting off our conversations by having the author kind of introduce the book. So can you give our listeners a little bit of an introduction to The Darkest Evening? Yeah, The Darkest Evening is the ninth of the Vera Stanup books. And I think Vera, the TV show, is quite popular in the US too. Mm -hmm. So people might know her from that rather than just the books. But And it starts off with Vera driving home in a blizzard. It's snowy. It's nearly Christmas time. And she loses concentration or just loses her way and ends up on a road that she doesn't recognize with the, the forest curved around one side of her and then sees that a car has slowed off the road because of, because of the weather. And she goes to investigate and the driver's door is open, but there's nobody there. And she thinks the driver's just wandered off to get phone reception or to find help. And then hears a cry in the back and it's a toddler strapped in a, a seat at the back. And so that's how it starts, really. And Vera takes the toddler with her to try and find help and ends up at this big country house called Brockbank, which she recognises immediately because it's where her father grew up. Mm-hmm. Her father, who's the black sheep of a country gentry. And so we find out a bit about the investigation, about who 
killed the, the child's mother, but also about Vera and her background and her family history. Yeah, so that part I'm really, I'm really interested because people have known Vera for so long. Like, was it exciting for you to, to kind of get in, to delve into, you know, her family history and like where, you know, her, you know, her father's upbringing kind of like almost yeah, I think new lore? I think I always knew it, but sometimes you forget to tell readers. So that was <laughs> quite fun to go back and remind myself, but also to remind readers that that Vera had this neglectful father called Hector, who was on very much on the edge of the law and countryside pursuits. And he might have been a good father, but his wife, the love of his life died, and he just wasn't interested in the child. So that's, that, that, that relationship between the father and the daughter has fed into Vera's life, really, <laughs> makes her who, who she is. Yeah. Um... I've seen you say a number of times that you always start writing from place. Um, yeah. Is is that you know? I know that you use you know the atmosphere of the area as a whole as a really great way to, to sort of ground your stories and then find out and you know, discover your characters. But did this story really come from Brockburn and being able to you know kind of almost trap everyone in this singular location like that? Well, that was fun because it takes us back as well to the golden age of, of murder mystery, doesn't it? The big mm -hmm. country house and the snow. So it was quite fun to play with that trope, you know, that, that idea, because it's very much based in 1930s, 40s, golden age fiction. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to very much bring that up to date because I do, I live up in the Northumberland Hills or I have a house up in the Northumberland Hills where I live for part of the time. And, and it's, a, it's a worker's cottage. It's on a big country estate. So at one time it would have belonged to the housekeeper or the chauffeur or somebody at the mm -hmm. big house. Um, and the family still live there and they are quite eccentric. I mean, much more eccentric than the people in the book. But I wanted to, I suppose, explore that relationship between people who own land and people who live on it. And it obviously, it, brings privilege to have that but quite often people who own land have very little cash and so there's there, there is that sense of responsibility and of obligation too for the people who are living and working with them so a, a, a way of looking at the English class system in quite a light-hearted way I suppose. Well and then also having you know using the weather to to trap them in that singular location it it really forces you know, I, like you said, you're thinking about the, the old Agatha Christie novels and even like the very famous movie Clue, where it's like everyone yeah. is, they're, they're forced almost to interact with each other and figure out what's going on because they can't leave. Yeah, though, of course, they're, they're only there in the book for one night and then they do leave. And it's more about, I suppose, the village and the, the other people who, mm -hmm. who are dependent on the the, the stand-ups for work and for livelihood, the other people in the village. And I've also seen you say that you, you write from the beginning of your books and you sort of discover characters and actions and, and twists as they happen. So does that make for a challenging almost edit when you go back to sort of, you know, leave those like breadcrumbs and things for people? Or, you know, I imagine it really does help keep the the twists and turns extremely fresh, seeing as how you don't even know when they're coming as well. 
Yeah, I suppose the plot lines, that's something that I find most tricky. You know, what am I going to, what's going to happen next? And, and not knowing and not planning in advance does, as you say, keeps it fresh and keeps it interesting for me. I would have no interest in writing a book when I knew exactly what has happened. Now, I know that there are people who, who do very carefully plot and know what's going to happen in each chapter. And part of me thinks that would be brilliant because it would be so reassuring and so comforting and so easy. But that's so boring to just be telling a story that you knew in advance. So, yeah, no, I don't work that way. I think because I had 25 years of not having any commercial success, or 20 mm -hmm. years certainly of no commercial success, you know, writing a book a year, mostly going into libraries, being very much supported by the Library Book Fund, but very rarely making it onto the, the, um, the popular bookshop, mm -hmm. the chain bookshop shelves, that it had to be fun because I was making so little money. I couldn't justify it as work, so I had to be enjoying it. Yeah, because this, this is this is your thirtieth novel in thirty years, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, yeah. yeah, it might be the thirty-second or thirty-first, but certainly going along that way. <laughs> yeah, and and I I know what you mean because writing is such a you know even people who truly enjoy it it is a it's a it can be a tedious task from now and then. So yeah, you, <laughs> writing for all those years and like you said and before you got commercial success, I would imagine you would probably want to enjoy it, especially as like You a... do, yeah, and I do, <laughs> I love it. That's the bit that I love best, is sitting at the kitchen table and making up stories. I think it's what is hardwired into humans. It's always how we've been, how we've tried to explain the world around us is by turning them into fiction, you know, from Beowulf up to the present day. Well, and, and so that's oh, what ahead. I love doing best. Yeah, and, and on top of that, I, I think, you know, when a book is a quote-unquote murder mystery, like I feel like that is a great hook to get people interested in a story, you know, especially when you see all the, the suspense and thriller books that come out. But, you know, I think that's a nice way to kind of figure, people like to figure out who done it or why done it or how done it. But then it also lets you play with, you know, you've got people there, but what you can do is have that murder mystery sort of be the backdrop where you can then, like you said, play with, relationships and how people would react in these unique yeah, situations. That, that's absolutely it. That in fact, the, the structure of the classic detective story, which I suppose I still write in, you know, there is a murder near the beginning of the book, there's a limited number of suspects and there is some form of resolution at the end. That frees me up really to, to write about what I really want to write about because I don't have to worry too much about the plot, that structure that I think it was Katrina McPherson who said that um, that structure, it's not a straitjacket, it's like a corset that holds you up and contains you. And I think that's, that's great because within that you can look at the things that I'm really interested in, which is, I suppose, about how people grow out of the places where they're born and where they're raised and about fractured families and mostly about community, what holds communities together and what makes them fall apart. Well, and it also offers, I would imagine as a writer, it offers such a unique situation to put these characters, even if you know them in your head or if they're a part of Vera's series of books and, you know, we, we've seen them before or not, it, I imagine it gives you an ability to really show how you think people would interact in these extreme situations because every single murder mystery that's written is a new opportunity to explore that dynamic. Of course, and I'm, I'm not interested at all in writing about monsters. You know, I don't write 
pacey serial killers or mm-hmm. i write about ordinary people and i want to understand them and so part of the process of writing is getting to know these people better and trying to work out what they would do in 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 such stressful circumstances so yeah that's that's how it works i think well and i've also seen you say that reading murder mysteries despite it being a a thrilling kind of sometimes unnerving aspect while you're doing it it really can also be a comfort especially times like now because you do get in most circumstances anyways you do get a like a a resolution towards the end is that that accurate you do get a sense of order restored and um justice prevailing and certainly at a time like this, probably more in the US than here, that's what we need, I think, is that sense that that right will triumph in the end or some sort of natural justice or order will be restored at the end. And, in, yeah. and it's quite interesting going back over history to see when the traditional crime novel was most popular. And it always, certainly in the UK, I'm, I, I think it's a very different form, the crime fiction in, in the US, but in the UK, the big, the, the golden age of crime fiction was the 1930s. And people think of that as being, you know, big country houses and smart people. But it was the time of the Great Depression. It was the Jarrow hunger marches. People weren't sure it was the rise of fascism in Europe. People were as uncertain then as we are now, I think. And I think that's why it was a, a time for, for people to read those sort of books, because they were as we said, they were, in a sense, they, they gave a sense of hope at the end. And then with us, it was the, 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 the next big time, I suppose, was Ruth Rendell and P.D. James was the 70s and 80s. And again, it was a time of political turmoil here, Thatcherism, the closing of the pits, the, the deindustrialization of whole swathes of the country. And interesting, again, that that was a time when when great crime writers came into their own. And then again, now I think that there is a resurgence of that very traditional crime, crime writing. Yeah, and, and especially you mentioned in, in the States here, like with there being so much upheaval with police brutality and police violence, and, and it's a situation where no matter where people stand politically in, in the United States, there's still this huge confrontation going on with, people in charge and I think you're absolutely right where it's nice to be able to read a story about Vera or about Hercule Poirot whoever it is that you can trust that the person in charge has everyone yeah Yeah, exactly and it just it is comforting to be able to escape into a world that's not so different from this one but also feels like there's a clearly established sense of right and wrong I think that what I write about, and I think it's, it's a quality that is very sexy and very underrated, is kindness. Mm-hmm. And I think that what, what, what's, why people like Vera so much, yeah, she's a loner, yes, yeah, she's, authori- she's authoritative, she's a woman of a certain age who is the boss and who knows what she's doing. But at the heart of her, there is a certain compassion and that, that strong sense of justice. So, but I think with crime fiction, especially now i don't know again it I, it's hard for me to talk about america but here lots of police officers are spending as much time 
with people who are mentally ill, looking for an emergency hospital place for them, mm -hmm. as they are with, with what we would normally consider crimes. You know, there, there's a lot of social work going on on the front line of the police service. And I think that that, so that allows people who write police procedurals to look at things like social justice and, and um, the problems of homelessness, of family breakdown, because the police are more and more being involved with that because our social services are, are short of cash and there's very little community care for people with, with poor mental health. So um, we're, we're allowed to explore all those areas, I think. Well, and then I also think that, that exploring those areas makes the characters even more relatable because, you know, one of the things I've always loved about Vera is she feels like a real person. She doesn't feel like a superhero or a completely like un non you know unstoppable force of a you know just like something that is omnipotent and th there is this understanding or like you said she you know in the darkest evening she realizes you know gets deeper into the like the troubling past she had with her father and it, it just shows a grounded character that I think we can all relate to which is important in these type, you know well, especially so. this time yeah, so. <laughs> did you um you know setting this during you know kind of the the winter and and the location and everything that you did it it, it does feel very much like Ricky Paro's Christmas and that you know traditional Christmas time murder mystery like did you feel any added pressure writing a story knowing that people were going to be comparing it to those specific types of murder mysteries uh, no, you see, I don't feel any pressure because for so long I wrote and was not in the public eye and nobody knew who I was and what, what I was doing. And, you know, it was astonishing to meet somebody who'd actually read one of the books. So I'm quite relaxed about it all now. You know what? It's great, but it's, that's down to luck because there are so many brilliant crime writers out there who haven't had the luck that I've had. And I know that so much commercial success is actually down to good marketing teams and brilliant publicists. Mm -hmm. And you can write a, you know, you could write a great book, but without that, you won't have that sort of success. So I'm quite grounded and realistic about the whole thing. I don't believe that I have to write a, a great novel each time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really flawed by poor reviews or I just well, enjoy writing. And I, I saw, uh, I was, I was laughing. I saw you, you were on a, an event like, like this, but that was, I believe was streamed and you were talking about some of your small library gatherings and your experiences yeah. and you would talk about um, the honesty of, of readers when you're right in front of them. And we, uh, in normal times, my co-host and I, we, we host events for our local library here in, in Cleveland. And it is, so uh, you're talking about not worrying about um, harsh reviews. I feel like as an author, you are told those things in person to your fan, like by your fans. They don't even mean to be harsh, but they'll say things yeah. at those library events that I imagine toughen you up pretty well. I think they have to, yeah. And because that was really, I, I didn't do any big literary festivals or for, for years and years and years. So it was small groups in libraries and, and they have so much that's interesting to say and they're so passionate about reading. But also what you realise is that the book isn't really yours once it goes to a reader because each reader reads it differently and they bring their own perspective and their own history and their own prejudice to the book. And so really that 
helped me when the book was adapted for television because it meant that really I just saw a hand it over to a director and a script writer just one stage further and I was quite happy to let it go really I don't feel any I don't feel precious about the material that the, they can the, the the team can do what they like with it pretty that's, much that's really interesting that you say that because we've had a few other kind of suspense writers um say the same thing Harlan Coben is another one whose books have been you know turned yeah. into movies and and tv shows and he told us the same thing like once he sets a book out in the world he turns it over to the readers but we've also had people tell us that throughout the editing process it can be hard to let go so when you're writing the stories and like we've talked about you are churning out literally a novel a year every year so i feel like you can't be too too precious with it because it has to get out there but do you feel apprehensive ever before it gets released that you don't know if it's ready to be shown to the world Oh, I wouldn't let it go if it wasn't if I didn't think it was ready. There is a, I mean, I, it's a book a year is really quite manageable, I think, especially if you're doing it full time and especially if you've got good editors. Mm. So I'm very lucky. I'm published by St. Martin's in the States and by uh, Pam Macmillan here. And they're all part of the same group, Macmillan. They're all part of Macmillan. And so I get two sets of notes or one set of notebook from two editors so my American and my English editor work together on the notes mm -hmm. on the feedback so that it means that I'm not having to think specially about a US audience or a mm -hmm. US readership so I'll write um, I'll, I'll think about the book from both those perspectives because I get the, the edits from both of them and they're just very helpful because you are so close to it when you're mm -hmm. writing it that there are things that you know that you forget to tell the, the reader. And sometimes there are scenes that you think, oh, I'm not sure this is working, but you hope that it'll, it'll slide through all right. And, and an editor will pick it up immediately. <laughs> and you need somebody to do that. You know, if you're feeling a bit idle one day, you really need someone to say, no, this isn't working, or you need to think about this again, or... And I think that, and my, my agents, my, my US and my UK agents are also co-agents, so they work together. So I get a first set of notes from them and then another set of notes from two very experienced editors. So by that time, I'm relatively confident mm -hmm. that it's okay. I mean, they're very kind, but they are very... Well, my US agent especially can be quite brutal. You know, if it's not working, they'll tell you. And that's how it has to be. Because I think we've all read books that haven't been sufficiently edited, where maybe the editor's a bit scared of the author and won't criticise, you, but you need it because you're so close that you, you definitely need a fresh pair of eyes on it. I was just going to say, you, you strike me as someone who feels very comfortable in that process now. I, I imagine after doing it for so, so long, but I know that there are certainly writers out there who are much more challenging to work with and they think that their, you know, their zero drafts is the way that it, it should go. But it sounds like you, having done this for mm -hmm. so long and churning out these books so, so quickly, it sounds like it really is a very collaborative effort for you with your editor. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if there's something that I'm really sure about and that I know that it's right, for me and for the characters in the book, mm -hmm. then it stays. You know, I'm, I am the god in my universe. It's my decision in the end what goes into the book. But I'm certainly open to listening to other people's points of view at that point. 
and quite often they're right. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find yourself while you're writing your books, do you find yourself also reading in this genre or do you try to kind of read outside of the genre so it doesn't intertwine with what you're writing? No, I read both. I try and read as widely as I can, but I'll certainly, I love crime fiction. I'm not going to stop write, reading crime fiction because I'm writing it because it has always been my comfort reading and I love it. And there are some brilliant crime writers who are doing all sorts of different things with it. I think certainly in the UK, I don't know so much about the American market, though I do have some favorite writers there. But it is like a new golden age. We've got some brilliant young crime writers coming up who have got a fresh voice and a new outlook on the world. And so I'm, I'm very excited by how crime fiction's developing. Has there, has there been anything that you've read lately that has really like kind of jumped out at you? Not to put you on the spot, no, but... Yeah, no, there are a number of books really. And again, looking, I suppose, the, the, the couple that, that I'm thinking of first by two women, Kath Staincliffe and Kaz Freer, both police procedurals, but really very interesting voices and looking at, and looking at, at society and conflict and social justice. Mm -hmm. So they were very good. And then you know, there's someone like Mick Heron, who I think everybody knows now, who writes those hugely entertaining spy Jackson Lamb books. Mm -hmm. And then someone like Abhi and Mukherjee, but also Vazim Khan, who set their books in India in the past. Mm -hmm. um, Abhya Mukherjee at the beginning of the 20th century, so just before independence. Yeah. And Vaz Khan has just written one called Midnight at Malabar House, which is set in the 50s, which again yeah. is very golden age in flavour, but very, very interesting take on the traditional crime novel yeah that was that was a big buzzy book over here in the states as well that was um it's funny because our at overdrive where i work we um you know we work with digital content all the time but we have a whole team of staff librarians who work here and it's really interesting to see they have like their own little kind of wheelhouses where they all like I know if I'm looking for a cozy mystery to go to talk to a specific person but it seems yeah. like the murder mystery is a very it's a it's a very I don't want to say it's like a stereotypical librarian like thing that they're all fans of they just all of our librarians happen to be very much in that that genre so that was a book that we all very much adored for sure yeah oh, that's good yeah well yes yeah, so I'm just trying to think of there, there are lots of, of great authors coming through now. So I've also seen you, know, you talk a lot about how because of the fact that you write from a sense of place and Northumberland being so integral in the, the story that you write, it's, um, it's a bit of a smaller area, correct? But not, not area, but population-wise, there's not a ton of people. Is that accurate? Uh, Northumberland is probably the least populated county in the UK mm -hmm. per square mile because it's quite big it, mm -hmm. it runs from the Scottish border right down to the River Tyne and then west almost across to the, the west coast as well so it's a big area geographically but it it's it, and it has one big city Newcastle on Tyne is is in it but 
Um, um, so how do you think that area affects the stories that you're oh, telling? It, it, yeah, that's where I start from. And it's not just landscape, though that's important. You know, I think if you grow up with long horizons and big skies, you see the world in a different place from if you grow up in an apartment in a big city. But it's about community. So in the Northeast, we did have a lot of coal mines, you know, the coals to Newcastle thing, mm -hmm. lots and lots of pits. And when we first moved here in the 1980s, there were still working mines then. But all those were closed very suddenly, leaving behind real pockets of deprivation and communities where there was no work and where generation after generation were unemployed. And so I can write about that. And then I can write about the, the big wealthy landowners mm -hmm. further inland. And I can write about um, faded seaside towns as I do in the seagull or prosperous market towns. And within quite a small one county, we have all those different, different communities. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. It, it, it's why we are, thousands of miles apart but I grew up in a small city called Lorraine it's actually where, where Toni Morrison is from and um, mm. it's like our, our one claim to fame um, but it was a it was a steel factory town it's on um, a lake here in the states called Lake Erie and mm -hmm. very much the same when all of the steel manufacturing jobs started leaving the country our city did much the same where this all, all those they closed up and then you know there's such this difference depending where you're at in the county between uh you know the the higher upper class people and those who are really on down on on their luck and i think that might be why i enjoy your story so much because despite the fact that we're half a world away from each other they feel <laughs> they feel like it's a story that anyone from really any area of the world understands these types of societal differences yeah. based on money yeah, and, and left behind towns, and but also here as well. I think, I mean, it's it's hard now because of COVID. So all sorts of we don't have a any more a thriving arts community. But certainly in Newcastle, which was a very depressed, very deprived, rundown city, it has become it has regenerated through culture, through a big music centre and great theatre, mm -hmm. and and it's so sad to see that fading away now with the. The, with we you know we we obviously can't open theaters and big yeah, music but, centers are not not opening anymore either so it's 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 so sad to see that yeah and that has been something that throughout covid it's been interesting to see there's been you know musicians can you know they can do socially distant concerts and we you know with authors you can do this sort of thing but yeah live theater it's really challenging really to replicate you can't really do any type of a streaming service outside of having a massive budget like they did with like hamilton when and anything like yeah. that but yeah it's it is i I'm ho i i hope that the theater districts well, can rebound yeah we we tried to do just i mean just for a bit of fun um if you look on my website i wrote a murder mystery which is mm -hmm. around the darkest evening but it's because in the past I've sent scripts out to libraries because it's something you can do as a, yeah. to pull in new readers actually to, to it's they're very very popular these so you know it's it's like a game of Cluedo but you have four suspects and you have a you set set it up there is a murder and you hear the witness statements and then there's a confession 
but we actually have done it live. So we took four actors out into the Northumberland countryside and mm -hmm. um, people can have a look at that. And I thinking maybe we could do that as a socially distanced thing, you know, like people do Zoom pub quizzes, mm -hmm. that you could use that as something that might bring a reading group together virtually if people want to use it. It's free, you can just, just use it if you want to. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I watched that uh, this morning and I'll, for everyone listening, I will put it in our show notes so that they can, they can see it. It is, it's so fun and it, for people, it's a different story from The Darkest Evening, so it's not like a spoiler. But it uses thing. the characters in the background. Right, but it is, it's, I, I hope more people continue to do that sort of thing because like you said, it is, especially with, you know, we're staring down fall and winter here, at least where I'm from. And it's, we're all going to be shuttered in inside again. The, the murder mystery, it is such a fun concept. Is that something that you wanted to do, like that you came up with, with the script writing? Or how did that come to be? It's so yeah, cute. I did it. I, in 1999, we had a national year of reading here in the UK. So the idea was to promote reading in all its forms. And I was, reader, I was made reader in residence for a couple of local authorities here in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And one of the librarians said to me, I want something that will bring people who don't normally come into the library into the library. And these murder mystery dinners are very, very popular. Mm -hmm. So can you write us a script? So I wrote a script called um, Brought to Book, I think we called it, set in a library. And it was just a, a very four simple monologues, very similar to the ones that, that are on the website. And we got loads and loads of people in and we got them into set then they we had a form and you could write down um who you think did it and then a reason and we worked out who the who the winner was and then the the, the murderer stood up and read the confession mm -hmm. just as just as in the, the youtube um film and people loved it and that and so every now and again i'll do a fresh one because libraries are always asking for them because it's something something a bit different to bring people into the library um and i've done them for st hilda's conference the murder mystery conference and and the you know um fundraisers use them women's groups and church groups use them as a fundraiser so the script is there on the on the website as well so you can download the script if you want to read them yourself but we thought that as we couldn't get people together in libraries to use it we would film it so that if people want to somehow do it virtually I think this it would certainly be possible to do that because you could get people to write what they thought the motive was and photograph it and zoom it in or email it into the organizer and you'd still be able to have a winner oh yeah absolutely I, like I said I'll make sure that I have them in our show notes because it's, it's so much fun <laughs> and I I love that I got really excited when I saw that it's it's delightful <laughs> Um, so, and it provided a bit of work for a couple of actors. Yeah, exactly. Helping out everybody there. <laughs> uh, so we always end our podcast by ha asking one last question, which is, what do you hope readers take away from The Darkest Evening? I hope they take away, I think it's that idea of kindness mm -hmm. that, and, and honesty, because both those things are what, keep family together you know you need to talk you need to be honest but you need to be kind I think that's absolutely perfect the book is wonderful and I believe Vera is shooting for the next season currently Vera is yeah they started filming today which is very brave because we do have a spike of 
infection here, but they're looking after the cast and crew really well. I won't be able to visit because they're just keeping it very much to the people who need to be there. Yeah, yeah but they started filming today, just, oh. just a couple of miles from where I live. <laughs> and then Facebook things are with pictures of Brenda coming out of a house. And... Oh, that's fantastic. Well, can't wait to watch that. And like I said, I know everyone who hasn't read The Darkest Evening yet is going to love it. And thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Adam. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.